Good morning, everyone, and welcome to everyone joining us online. Thanks for joining us. When suffering comes, how will you respond? So it's not a, it's not a if. Not a if suffering comes. When suffering comes, how will you respond? I'm going to keep asking you that question throughout the, the message this morning. On uh, June 5th, 2012, I got a call that uh, a horrible tragedy had occurred to a young family in our church. Uh, a lady that should not have been driving was driving and had a seizure. And as she was having her seizure, drove her car over about like 100 yards of a grassy area and, and hit a family. And our church was having a picnic. Uh, little boy Aiden, age seven, took the brunt of the impact. His dad, John, attempted to save his life, but Aiden tragically passed away at the scene. Uh, Amy, the mom, was, had severe injuries. Their young daughter, Lizzie, watched on. Uh, first responders who were there said it, w- it was just horrible. They, they had not seen uh, anything like it before. I get the call, and this is like, I, I can't even tell you how awesome this family is. They're, they're the greatest family, continue to be the greatest family. And so I, you know, I'm, I rush to the ER and, and meet them there, and I find John and you know, Amy's, I think, in surgery, and uh, his, his little boy is in the other room, his, his body's in the other room. And you know, at that moment, as a pastor, you just hold the person. He wept, I wept. There, there's no words to give in those moments. And over the ensuing days and weeks and months, we, we walked together through, through this tragedy. They, they asked me to officiate the memorial and the burial, which, which I agreed to do. I'll never forget that moment. I'd done a number of of funerals and memorial services, never one like that. And so as we wrestle with this question today, we're going to wrestle with, I just, I tell you some of this to say, like, I've thought about this. I've, I've, when you stand in front of, like, it was a packed room that day, and I remember, like, 50, 60 first responders were there in full regalia and uniform to honor the family because of how they were impacted. And you look down, and there's a little girl who's lost a brother, and and Amy had to watch from the hospital, and John's there, and aunts and uncles and grandparents and first responders, and everybody's looking to you, and they're all asking the same question that stalks all of our paths. Why? Why? Here we are in a house of worship. Why? (laughs) Where is God in all of this? That's the question we're going to go after today, and, and how can a loving God allow so much suffering? And it's a really serious question. And we've been going through this series called 10 Questions. And we're trying to look at questions that serve as a barrier to our deeply rooted belief here at New Hope that the way of Jesus is good and beautiful and true. We believe that. I believe that. And yet there are questions that stand in the way of that and are barriers. And we're trying to honestly have conversations uh, about them. And we want to be a church that leans into those things and not away from those things. Because as we lean into those things, I think we'll find ways to navigate the world as we see it. And I hope today will be helpful in that regard. This question, in really nerdy theological circles, is called theodicy. You may hear that term at some point. The word theodicy literally means vindication of God. How can we believe that God is good and beautiful and true and then look at the world? Look at this mayhem. Look at the evil and suffering that exists. Our big read for this series is a book called Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Many of you have been reading it. It's it's not too late to jump in. It's a really remarkable book. Parents, there's a student copy that our students have been going through. 
She frames up this theodicy question really well, so I'm just going to read from her book. Uh, she says, uh, Three million Africans forcibly transported by the British slave trade, six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims, the trafficking of more than two million children this year in the global sex trade, while 1.5 million children died of diarrhea, famines in South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, and Yemen, the 2004 tsunami in Indonesia that left 230,000 dead, the quiet stealth of cancer, children abused by their parents. How can we reckon with suffering? For many, this question torpedoes the Christian faith. How can the hypothesis of a loving, powerful God stand under the crushing weight of human distress? And as I say every week, uh, we provide a list of resources. And one of those, the books on the resource list this week is by Philip Yancey. He's a pretty well-known writer over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. He's written exhaustively on the subject. I really like his books. One of his books is simply entitled, Where is God When It Hurts? And maybe that's one of the simplest ways to frame this question today. Where is God when it hurts? This is a massive topic. I say this every week. All of these topics are massive. We don't uh, in any way, shape, or form suggest that those of us up here who are, have the honor of speaking on these topics can give you a sufficient answer in the amount of time that we have. But it's meant to be a catalyst. We're meant to kind of provide pathways for you, those of you who are apprentices of Jesus, to continue to explore and dig in. And we try to give you numerous things to watch and listen and read to, and especially this topic. Uh, reams and reams of literature and books have been written on this, and, and they will be until Jesus comes finally and makes all things right, which is what I believe. So dig in. Um, and a lot of these questions each week we go to, there's a head component, meaning that we have bad thoughts about them or bad ideas. We think about them in inadequate ways. And I think that's true for this question. But I think more than any question we're going to explore, this is a heart question. And so as you walk through it today, I want, I want to challenge you uh, to think about something, uh, a time in your life where you've suffered immensely. And some of you are like, well, that's really easy because I'm in that right now. And I'm glad you're here today. I hope it will be helpful. Some of you are in a period of time right now that you're flourishing and, and you don't have any acute suffering. Thank God for that. Rejoice in that. We all have, hopefully have some seasons like that. We want to be grateful for those. Uh, if you're in that season, think about a time that you have struggled and suffered. If you're one of those super rare people in this room that you're not suffering right now and you've never suffered, um, you will. You will. You just can't get through this life. It's not a, it's not a if question. It's a when. And let's not be reactive, let's be proactive people. So I want you to have that front and center as we walk through it, because I'm going to ask you to try on for size some thought systems as we try to answer this question. All right, let me pray, and then Portia's going to come and uh, give our public reading of Scripture from Isaiah 53. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your presence with us. We invite you to work in our lives we pray that you would anchor us to this moment. We are distracted people. I'm a distracted man. And we pray that things that are, can distract us that happen this week or that await us or later today, that they wouldn't. That you would have our all, our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our will and our emotions. That we'd be present with you and your people this morning as we step fearfully, really, into the, the answer to this question or trying to explore answers. Be gentle with us. Be loving as you are. And uh, I pray that 
we would be encouraged, that we would be equipped as apprentices of Jesus to go into a world that is broken and racked by sin and suffering and evil and navigate it for the sake of others and the glory of God. Uh, We know that we need your spirit to do that within us. As we hear your word right now, may it come alive in us, may it shape us and form us into more devoted uh, followers of Jesus. We pray this in his name and all God's people said. Today's reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6 and 10 to 12. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I liked it. I like the shout, whoever shouted. That's what I'm talking about. So when we address this question of theodicy, uh, we have to start with a basic premise that I'm pretty sure most people in this room would agree on, that we live in a world where suffering exists that evil exists. Like, you can't listen to what Rebecca wrote earlier or my opening story, or I could hear from all of you and hear the mayhem in the world and say, oh, we don't, there's no evil or suffering. So we start with the premise that we have a problem. Whether you call it sin, whether you call it evil, whether you just call it suffering, we have a problem, and all of us have to have an answer. Uh, and I'm arguing that we should be thoughtful about that and proactive about that and not reactive about that. Yes, Christianity must answer this question. So must every human. So must every philosophy or thought system or religion. So I want to, uh, the the way we we go at things is we have what I would call uh, frameworks. That's my metaphor this morning. Anything that that we go at in life with a thought system or response, it's a framework. You may know you have a framework and you may not. But it's formed by your culture, maybe your family of origin, maybe your belief system or your religion or your ethical leanings. We all have a framework. We bring the party in almost everything. We frame things. And so I think we frame suffering. When suffering happens, how will you respond? Well, you're going to, if it happened today, you're going through right now, you are responding through a framework, how you see your suffering. It's, it's hemmed in by certain thoughts and presuppositions. 
So I want to talk about uh, two common frameworks that we have for suffering, why I think they're inadequate, and then I want to talk about the biblical framework for suffering, and hopefully it will encourage us and equip us to be better disciples of Jesus. So the first framework is what I call uh, the no-God framework, or the atheist framework. Uh, I referenced this a little bit last week in the Bible or the faith and science question. I called this scientism. It's the idea that we live in a natural world and the only reality is the natural world. The things that we can see and analyze and experience with our five senses. This is also called naturalism. When we add that ism, they become everything. And so this is a prevalent worldview out there. There is no God. There is no spiritual reality. All that we see is and this is a commonly held worldview or framework. So when suffering happens and evil happens, let's apply that worldview. One of the major thinkers in this worldview is a guy named Dr. Uh, Richard Dawkins. You may be familiar with him. And he says this, that uh, this worldview believes that the world has no design, no purpose, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, you may not like that, but I give him credit for being honest. There's a lot of people who are naturalist that aren't honest that that is what they're saying. And so he's explicitly honest that there is no good, there's nothing but pitiless indifference. Uh, Stephen Hawking is another person that would have this framework. Uh, he suffered most of his adult life with a motor neuron disease. He's a brilliant scientist. You may know his name. He, he believed our, our bodies and our brains were nothing more than just like computer parts and that at some point they would break down and we would cease to exist. He says, there is not heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. So you may, we're not going to talk about naturalism today. This, that's not what the mess is about. But we're looking at this is a prevalent framework. And those folks have to apply that framework when suffering and evil happen. How are they going to answer it? So think of the thing that I ask you to think about in your world. Think about my friends I told the story about. How would you apply that framework to those people? How would you talk to someone who's going through suffering and evil? You would be forced to say stuff happens or something like that. You'd have to shrug like kind of philosophically and theologically. I, I, I don't know. It just it is what it is, man. Stuff happens. We're all, we all came from scum, and we're going back in the earth and eaten by worms, and that's life. That's it. Now, I want to be really fair here, because I've got good atheist friends, people who have this framework, that are some of the kindest, most generous, most gracious, most forgiving people, way more than some of my Jesus-following friends, to be honest. So I want to be fair to them. that I'm not saying that anybody that holds this view is going to be unkind or would meet somebody in suffering and say stuff happens. Very few of them will, right? And if they do, stay away from those people. So I'm, what I'm saying is that they are contradicting, that they are a contradiction to the very belief system that they say they believe in. That's coming from somewhere else. I think it's coming from God. But I don't want to say that all atheists are, are mean, unkind people. That's simply not true. But the thought system, the framework that we remove God, and it's just naturalism, leaves us inevitably when, suffering, when we encounter suffering and evil to not even call it evil. Do you see that? Richard Dawkins says, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. It's just, eh, it's just stuff. So that's one framework. I think it's wholly inadequate. The second one is a, a, even more commonly held one, and I call this the, the karma framework, the karma framework. And this is the framework, essentially. I'm going to try to simplify it. So know that I'm, I'm simplifying it and be fair to me in that. 
uh, when you act a certain way or do something good or bad, there are causes to that or there are effects of that. Karma. This is heavily uh, prevalent in, in religions such as Hinduism, in Buddhism, other thought systems. They're complicated belief systems. I'm not saying that's all that they are. But that is a current that runs through a lot of Eastern religions and thought systems. That uh, it, it's woven into reincarnation. That uh, if you are reincarnated into a higher form, then you did something good in your previous life. If you're reincarnated in a lower form, you did something bad. So when you look at the Indian caste system, this is underlying that. So if you're at the bottom of the caste system in India, they think you did something in a previous life to deserve that. And if you're at the highest place in the caste system, they think you did something in a previous life to deserve that. So that's the, the karma system. We see this playing out in our, our common vernacular when we're like, you got really lucky, or I hope that goes well, or you're cursed, or the, the, the saying that, you know, everything happens for a reason. Don't say that. It's, just, it's like, don't say that to people who are going to be suffering. That's when we say that kind of thing, that's karma. And, and there's part of us that like want that. We like that because we want to get what we deserve and vice versa. So we have a Judeo-Christian form of this as well. Uh, scholar, Old Testament scholar John Walton, I really like his work. He calls this the retribution principle. And let me quote him. I think he frames it up in a really excellent way. He says, the retribution principle is the conviction that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer both in proportion to their respective righteousness and wickedness. In Israelite theology, the principle was integral to the belief in God's justice. Since God is just, the Israelites believed it was incumbent on him to uphold the retribution principle. Having a worldview in which God was absolutely just and comp compelled to maintain the retribution principle, they developed the inevitable converse corollary, which affirmed that those who prospered must be righteous, i.e. favored by God, and those who suffered must be wicked, i.e. experiencing the judgment of God. We've got a whole book in our Bible devoted to dismantling this. It's called the book of Job. And some of you may be familiar. It's a great book. And if you know at the beginning of Job, Job is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's how we're set up. That's how the narrative is set up. And then God allows him, allows the evil one to come in and mess with him. And mess with him he does. And then Job has these three friends. That makes up the lion's share of the book of Job. And they're coming in and giving Job speeches. And each of them are giving a speech, which is their version of the retribution uh, principle. And, and they're essentially saying in different ways, Job, what did you do wrong? Job, you look righteous from the outside. We've always known you to be righteous. But because you're going through all this, you must have done something wrong. So why don't you fess up? They're all saying that version of it. And Job holds strong for like 75% of the book. And then right, 75%, he starts to wear down. Do you blame the guy? He's got sores all over him, and his friends are coming at him. And he finally goes to God in prayer and says, God, what did I do to deserve this? He buys into the retribution principle. And then the last 10 chapters of Job are like a mic drop, a divine mic drop, where God's just like, you have no idea what's going on, Job. Shh. And that's the book of Job. It dismantles the retribution principle. And yet, although that's in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see it prevalently in the Gospels. Jesus in, I think it's John 9, verse 2, they're walking along and they see a person that's been blind for birth. And his disciples stop. These are teenagers. And they said, Jesus. And they're just kind of trying to have conversations with their rabbi. Who caused this man's blindness, the man or his parents? 
That's what they're asking. What did this man do wrong? Certainly he couldn't just be blind. And then later in Luke, uh, Luke talks about we have this massacre at the temple. We don't know exactly what happened where a bunch of people died. And we have a tower falling and killing 18 people. We see these things on the newspapers every day. Natural disaster kind of thing. And Jesus says in Luke 13, 4, do you think these people were more guilty than the other? That's a rhetorical question. He's like, they're not. He's like, stop believing this foolishness. That's not how it works. And yet we still buy into that in insidious ways in our day, the Judeo-Christian form of the karma principle. Imagine applying that to whatever I ask you to think about, or what I would say to, to my dear friends, and what I would say to other people that I'm walking with through tragedy and mayhem. Essentially, what we're left with like, what did you do wrong? That's horrible. And don't you think people who go through tough things think that? Because they're so steeped in the karma principle. I must have done something wrong. Another way we say it is, why do bad things happen to good people? When we ask that question, we're coming from the framework of the karma principle, and it's totally inadequate, and it's not biblical. All right, so what's the biblical framework? So what I hope to do today is equip us with what the Bible says about suffering and evil and how God is interacting with us, so that either you're going through something now or you will or you have in the past, you can put it in the proper framework. So a frame is a helpful metaphor here because I'm going to talk about four ideas or principles in Scripture that form the biblical framework. The first is that God loves us. God loves us. And I don't want to be trite about that. Uh, You know, God loved the world, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. There's a guy growing up at sporting events. Some of you are maybe a little older. I think this guy got arrested. I'm not sure what happened to him. But every major sporting event, does anybody remember that guy? He'd always hold it up in the end zone or sport. John 3.16. And even the young guy was like, I learned that, yeah, that was the core of the gospel. And I still think that's true to this day. For God so loved the world. God's motivated the core of who God is by love. In 1 John 4, it says that God is love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity are in this eternal dance, this relationship that is love. And the gospel says we're freely invited into it. My best definition of love I've ever heard is Thomas Aquinas' that love is willing the good of the other. Isn't that beautiful? Love is willing the good of the other. Imagine that. This this is our first, first part of the frame. That God eternally wills your good. When suffering comes, the Bible says we have to cling to that. That God eternally wills your good. We can't doubt that. But here's kind of the, the shadow side of that, if you will. Any viable definition of love presupposes free will. Uh, C.S. Lewis said in a very harsh way, but I think effective way, that God is not a divine rapist. I think that's effective because no one would consider rape any form of love. It's the antithesis of that. Rape is not coercive. When we're loved by somebody, when we experience love, we presuppose they do it freely. If we find out later they were paid to do so or forced to do so, it's not love. It's something else. It's insidious. So God, if God was going to create a world where love is possible because God is love, God had to also create a world of authentic, real free will that people could choose good or they could choose evil. So did God create evil? No, but God did create a world in which evil was possible for the sake of love. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it this way, free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will or give us free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is, only the, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. 
So this understanding of love, the story of Scripture comes God coming into a world that's broken by sin and suffering and evil and loving us within it. So the first side of the frame, when we go through suffering, think of that thing you're going through. God loves you. God wills your good and will always will your good. The second side of the frame is that God grieves with us. And I would go to a story, uh, John 11, and maybe a familiar story. To some of you, Jesus' good friends, Mary and Martha Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus is away. Martha calls for him. Jesus waits. Why did he wait? And then Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up late. Mary's broken, weeping at his feet. Martha's angry with him. Why, Jesus? And he says, he says, he will rise again. She's like, I know he'll rise again. I know my theology. He's like, no, you don't get it. He'll rise like now, like right now, for I'm the resurrection and the life. But then we have these verses. Listen, this is Jesus. We believe as a princess of Jesus that Jesus is God in the flesh. Listen how God in the flesh responds. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. John repeats this phrase in the Greek twice, and it is also used for the snort of a war horse. It's not only grief, but it's anger. He's angry at death and what death has caused and the suffering that has caused. In his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So as we're going through, just picture those two words, whatever you're going through, that that Jesus weeps with us and, and invites us to weep with him. The Psalter, our prayer book, one person has estimated up to 70% of it are prayers of lament. Prayers that we're praying with God that things are not right and we're broken by it and we're angry and we're crying out to God and the Psalter invites us to pray that way. And God prays with us. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a philosopher from Yale and a follower of Jesus, and his son died uh, tragically. And he wrote this remarkable book that I've given to more people going through suffering called Lament for a Son. And he says this, The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. The mourners are aching visionaries. Years ago, uh, my mom got diagnosed with a, a really serious form of cancer. She, she still has that, and gratefully, uh, she's in remission. Thank you so much for all of you who are praying with us. Please continue to pray for her, for her healing, that her cancer would stay in remission. Let's just pray that God takes it. Amen. And so, uh, but when she got that diagnosis, I was preaching at the, at the old church, and it was prior to COVID, and I don't know what I was preaching on, but I, was, I always try to be real and honest with you about where I'm at. And and I begin to share the story and the diagnosis. And, and I know I can be weepy guy and, and all that, but I like broke down. And uh, do you remember this portion? I don't know if you were there. She's like, yeah. I mean, it was messy. It was like embarrassing crying, just like, you know, snot and tears. And, and I just, I had that check in my spirit of like, okay, I got to shut this off. And then I said, no, no, I don't. And I just, I kept, I didn't even wipe my face. I just kept rolling. And so I'm sure a lot of people left church that day or whatever. But I, I felt that you were grieving with me, those of you who were there. And you came up later and you grieved with us. But more, more importantly, God was grieving with me. God was okay with that. God invites that. God is the God who weeps with us in our suffering. So that's the second frame. God, when you're going, whatever you're going through, God loves us. God, he weeps with us. He grieves with us. And then God shares and bears 
our suffering. And this is Isaiah 53, uh, what Portia read earlier. Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because it talks so much about the Messiah who we believe is Jesus. The term in, in Isaiah that Isaiah uses is the suffering servant. And it was a disconnect for many believers in Isaiah's day, many, many Hebrew people, and in Jesus' day. This is why they didn't see him as that person, because they expected this Messiah would come in human power and might and push down and even use the power of God to kill their enemies and to reign. That's what they thought. And then here comes the suffering servant, not powering down, but coming from below. The suffering servant would not kill anybody, but die for everyone. And it was a disconnect for them. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. And Isaiah 53 so brilliantly unpacks it. It says this servant was despised and rejected. It says that twice in verse 3. They rejected because they didn't, they didn't get it. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. I like to say that God shares our suffering so that one day we will suffer no more. Nicholas Wolterstorff, is he, is he, is he, he was a philosopher, world class, still is. And he wrote a ton on theodicy. He was, he was one of the leading minds on theodicy. He understood it in his head how this might have all worked. But man, when he lost his boy, tragically in that rock, he was broken. And he began to ask the deeper heart questions. And lament for a son is this brilliant man's journal. As he grieved, as he wrestled with God, as he prayed, as he decided if he still wanted to believe, where's God in all this? And Nicholas said he got to this one point where he had a breakthrough. He just realized this very simple point that he had missed all along. He writes, God is not only the God of the suffers, but the God who suffers. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. I, this, this theodicy question is a tough one. And I've heard people say that it is the hardest question for Christians to answer. I would, without being snarky, say, well, everyone has to answer it. Everyone has to give an answer for it. We can't evade the question. Um, I increasingly, as I go deeper with the Lord, I don't have it all worked out. I don't have an answer for everything. But I believe it's, it's almost a strength of Christianity. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had this great quote called the man in the arena quote. Does anybody remember that? It's, it's framed up in a lot of places you hear it talked about. And uh, Roosevelt would, would, would talk about how anyone can be a critic or kind of cast dispersion on others or ask hard questions, but the credit goes to the person in the arena. I love this line. He says, who's willing to spin themselves in a worthy cause and is willing to dare greatly even they, though they may ultimately fail. I've always wanted to be that person. Our God is. Our God did not stay at a distance and watch all hell break loose and just be like, I'm done with those idiots. Could have and been just, but God entered the fray. I think that is super compelling about the way of Jesus. So we have, uh, when we're going through whatever we're going through, God loves us. God grieves with us. God shares and bears our suffering. And then finally, God has promised and is making all things right. One of my mentors used to tell me all the time that um, everything's going to be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. <laughs> it's a, that's hopeful, right? It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, today is, is not the end of the story. The story is not over. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. As Tolkien would say, everything sad will come untrue. 
uh, Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky, great novelist, says it this way. He was a follower of Jesus. He says, all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. In the world finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed. It will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Or as the prophet Joel says, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. That's a prayer on my heart often for myself, for my family, for this church, that God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. What a promise. I'm, I'm reading Chronicles of Narnia with Jubilee, our youngest, and, and Eden and I read it previously, C.S. Lewis's um, great seven uh, book series. And the last book, uh, The Last Battle, at the very end of it, he has this scene. I often read this at, at funerals and memorials. And the kids, you know, they're going back and forth through this portal, the wardrobe, and other places to this, this land of Narnia, if you're familiar with it. And they have a train accident, and they're back into Narnia. And they're kind of like, that was a weird way to go into Narnia. And Aslan comes, who is Jesus, and says, uh, that was real this time. That was real. And this is what Lewis writes near the end of, of his seven-book series. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands. That's Lewis's terms for Earth. You're dead. <laughs> the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. The things that begin to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for us, this is the end of all of our stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was the only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. As we encounter suffering, when we do, maybe you are right now, we have to have a proper biblical framework. God loves us. Right? God grieves with us. God shares and bears our suffering, and God is making all things right. Within this, we're able to see that suffering can be used for good. Now, this is really important. Don't ever say suffering is good. Suffering is evil. Suffering comes from sin. Suffering is not good. But God is the type of God within this understanding, even though God didn't cause any of the suffering evil, he can enter into the fray, pay the cost of love, and will to do good for us within it. It's unbelievable. I, I, I encountered this story years ago called the, it was about this group called the Recycled Orchestra. I don't know if you've heard of them, but this community in Paraguay, 200 and, uh, 2,500 uh, families in living in this, this, this dump, if you will, this massive dump. 1,500 uh, 1, pounds of raw waste gets dumped there every day. It's just people are sick and they're not getting educated and illiteracy and foul water. We can't even understand suffering like that. And this uh, music teacher from a local community came in and wanted to teach the kids that were there. And none of the kids went to school. They just were trying to go through trash all day to find anything valuable. And he began to teach them music. And he had a couple instruments that he would bring from the community. But he found like tons of these kids wanted to learn music. And so he went to a local carpenter that was a really ingenious guy. And he said, hey, I got an idea. Would you be able to come in and use some of the stuff in the dump and make instruments? And he thought he loved that challenge. He's like, yes. 
And so he began to make these instruments, and then this orchestra formed, and now there's Landfill Harmonic is the, is the documentary. They've been on 60 Minutes. They've been all over the world playing for royalty and Pope Francis, and they've, they've done, they do anything from, from classical to Frank Sinatra to Mozart to Stevie Wonder to Metallica even. Imagine that. It's remarkable. And it's this idea, when I saw it, I was like, that's the gospel. This stuff that comes into our lives that you're going through right now that you have been, that seems waste. Like there's nothing good in this, and that's truthful. Like it's evil, it's waste, it's suffering. Why? Within the proper framework, God can come in and take that. I don't know how God does it, but I love this about God. And can reform it and make something beautiful come out of it if we allow it. We see this throughout Scripture, the, the idea that suffering causes us to grow. Paul wrote, but we also glory in our sufferings. Do you hear that? We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. James, the brother of Jesus, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials. Consider it pure joy when you face trials in many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If these men weren't inspired by the Spirit of God and didn't have the proper biblical framework, what they're saying would be lunacy and horrible. But they understand. They understand the proper framework, and they're able to say those things. One of my mentors years ago told me a story. He was, had 30 or 40 pastors that he was leading through some things, all like super large churches. And he said, I want to ask you guys something, ladies, something. Uh, how many of you think, raise your hand, if you think that suffering is the number one catalyst for spiritual growth. And he said, every hand in the room went up. Every single hand in the room. And frankly, it's that kind of thing none of us pastors want to talk about because it doesn't make your churches very large. <laughs> no one wants to grapple with that. There's an author named Bob Benson, and he had a friend that went through a heart attack, and, and this sits close to him with me with my heart issues, and this friend had a heart attack and recovered, thankfully, and he said, he said, hey, how did you like your heart attack? He's like, I didn't like it. It was horrible. He's like, would you do it again? He's like, no, I don't want to do it again. He's like, are you a better man? He's like, yeah. He's like, are you, are you a better father? Oh, yeah. Are you a more present husband? Oh, yeah. Are you better at your job? Yeah. Do you think you have a deeper walk with Jesus? Oh, yeah. And he said, how do you like your heart attack? And within the right framework, mature followers of Jesus are able to see this. And we have to be very careful with this tension, right? We don't say this stuff to people going through it right in the moment. Be compassionate. Be loving. But we know the, the deeper way of Jesus is to take these broken places and spaces and bring goodness out of them and beauty. I would say it this way. If you've ever met someone that just leaks the Holy Spirit. They're just godly. The fruit of Spirit is just bubbling out of them, and they're anchored to the Lord. I will guarantee you that person has been through really intense things. I've never seen anything other than that. God can bring beauty out of our suffering by causing us to go, and, and God can also bring beauty because suffering cultivates compassion. This word compassion is one used for Jesus perhaps more than any other word. And it's that idea that someone's walking in our shoes, that someone really gets what we're going through. That you're vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I got this diagnosis, or I'm depressed, or I'm not sure I want to go on living, or on and on and on. And we're vulnerable. We put ourselves out there to somebody, and someone is with us. Have you had that experience? 
I hope you have. We know when they're not with us, when they're staring off and looking at their phones and they, ha- they have no idea, they haven't gone through tough stuff. We know the people who are. And it's, it's, that word is used when voices are in harmony or instruments in our harmony. It's like when someone's, yes, I get you. I understand you. And this is what suffering can create in us, the opportunity to have this for others. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. I had a, a pastor friend from town um, two weeks ago reach out, and, and uh, several years ago, many of you know, I, I have heart disease, and I had stents put in in the Widowmaker artery, which is one that just takes you out like that. So I feel like I'm on borrowed time, and I'm excited about that. God must not be done with me. And uh, my friend's like, hey, John, you've shared your story, and there's another young pastor who was about your age when you got diagnosed that just, he's having a lot of heart pain, and he's scared, and would you reach out to him? I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. And I know this pastor, so I just called him a couple days ago, and he told me his story, and he's like, I, you know, I just, I don't know if you understand, I feel shame. I'm like, oh, I understand. He's like, I feel like I did something wrong. Yeah, I understand that. He's like, I'm hiding it from my wife. I, oh, yeah, I understand all of that go to the doctor, you know, go in. And, and he did, and, and, uh, and he got an angiogram, and I, I called him before, and I was praying with him, and it was coming from a deep place of compassion. It was like yesterday I remembered those emotions walking with him through that. And I, I texted him after the, the surgery, and I was like, how did it go? And he's like, I got a stent put in the Widowmaker. And I was like, we ought to start a Widowmaker stent club, you know? It's like, I don't know that anybody would want to be in that club. But, like, did I have compassion for him? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I saw God carrying me through what I went through, equipping me in the kingdom of God to come along with my brother and be compassionate, and I'll continue to walk with him. All right, so what did I say at, at Aiden's memorial? Um, I, I looked back through my notes. It was 10 years ago, and, and, and I, would, I would ask you, uh, John and Amy and Lizzie are their names, and uh, they're just incredible people and followers of Jesus. We'll always stay with them. And, as you think about them even today, or even as I'm reading this, just pray for them. Uh, Ten years, right? It'll, it'll never leave. You know, Aiden would be 17. And so let's pray alongside them. Here's what I said. Uh, and here we are. None of us wants to be here. Not for this. We are sad. Someone once said that every lament is a love song, and I think that's probably true. Our level of grief correlates directly to the depth of our love. We are experiencing deep grief and sadness because we love Aiden so very much and because he was so lovable. Some of us are also angry. We all want to know why this tragic and senseless accident occurred. Let's just remove any illusion that I or anyone else can provide an adequate answer to that question. I have no idea why this happened. But while this is a tragic and senseless event, I do not believe it is meaningless, nor do I believe it is hopeless. When we encounter great evil and tragedy, it is common for people to question the existence of God, or at least the existence of a good God. This is an appropriate response. But I believe that response leaves us in an even worse state. We have nowhere to turn. There is no God. There's there's no one to question and no one to yell at and no chest to beat on. There's no God. There's no one to cry out to when our world is crumbling in around us. There's no God, then there's no hope and there's no meaning. I refuse to believe that this is the case. We gather here today in a house of worship, holding fervently but tenuously to the belief that there is a God who has revealed himself in our time and space and who cares deeply for us. We have someone to question, to scream at, even blame if we so choose. On Tuesday afternoon, the the family said goodbye to Aiden's former body, and yet Aiden is very much alive. 
John and Amy remember well the moment Aiden chose to place his faith in Jesus for salvation. Because of that decision, the moment Aiden's earthly body expired, he immediately entered the presence of God. I wish I could tell you exactly what he's doing right now, but the Bible doesn't reveal that. I do know he is experiencing shalom. He's experiencing all things being made right. I suspect he's having a blast with the granddad he never got to meet here on earth. John and Amy and Lizzie, one day you will see Aiden again. Maybe you'll get a chance to make pancakes or build snow tunnels or reenact scenes from Star Wars. Although I suspect there's something even better in the world to come. For this is not the end of the story. It is to be continued. I want us to pray. Um, I know some of you are weird with, with posture stuff, and that's okay, but I want to ask you to be vulnerable and just hold out your hands. Close your eyes. I want you to think about the thing that you've been pondering, the, the suffering you're going through right now, the suffering you have gone through, and I want you to hold that up to Jesus. I want you to, to close your eyes and take a deep breath. Relax your face and your neck and your shoulder and, and your body. This is a prayer from a man named Dallas Willard who was said by one of his friends at Dallas had Psalm 23 written all over his face. And uh, I want to walk us through Psalm 23. I, I try to do this regularly with things I'm going through, and I hope, it's, I hope it's helpful to you. The Lord is our shepherd. God, we put you in charge of our lives. We're no longer trying to run the show. We're grateful to live under your care. We shall not want. Thank you, God, that today we do not have to live under the tyranny of unfulfilled and unsatisfied desires. Today, whatever is going on in our circumstances, we look to your presence and care. You make us lie down in green pastures. You, you lead us beside still waters. A sheep that is lying down in green pastures is no longer hungry, or else it would be standing up eating. A sheep that encounters still waters can drink in peace and be satisfied. You have met our needs physically, emotionally, spiritually. We're so grateful that we do not need to go through life driven by hunger or thirst. You restore our souls. Oh, God, how do we, we need this? Our minds are so easily obsessed with anxiety and anger. Our souls feel torn up and wounded. Thank you that you heal our souls. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. God, thank you that you help us make wise decisions, that you're growing good inside of us that can come out of us. Thank you for leading us in the right paths. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Thank you, God, that when anxiety comes, it does not have to rule our lives, for you are with us. You are with us. This day, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us and the presence of our enemies. Thank you, God, that we do not have to live in anxious fear in the presence of our enemies. We can be calm enough to be hungry and ready to eat and maybe even share food with our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. You give us hot showers and clean, comfy towels after long, hard days. Our cups runneth over. Our cups are not just mostly full or not even all the way full. They're running over. So there's love we can give to others. And surely your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Picture goodness and mercy as little dogs running behind us, little goodness and little mercy trailing behind us, following us from one moment to the next. We're never alone. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We do not even need to fear death. Thank you, God, for you and for your love. Thank you that we can live 
an experience-based confidence of your loving care. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, as we come to the table, um, how can we not think about Isaiah 53? The Hebrew people would have certainly thought about it. And I always think about the young disciples and their eyes kind of getting wide and their hearts coming open as Jesus explained it and it all came together for them. They're like, oh, oh, I see. I see the, the Messiah didn't come to, to kill. The Messiah came to die so that others may live, that by his wounds we are healed. And may that be a catalyst for us as, as we're his followers, as we're his apprentices, that we go out in the world today as we remember that our invitations that go out filled with his spirit to break our bodies and spill our love for the good of others to love the world. That's our empowerment right here. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after a given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, he said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and take the elements, and if you're willing and you're able, let's stand together and worship our King.